The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's a case that should be dismissed immediately. The fraud was on behalf of the court. The court was uh, the fraudster in this case. They made references to assets that were very valuable, and they said uh, they had no idea. They had no idea what the numbers were when they said $18 million for Mar-a-Lago. And it's 50 to 100 times that amount by any estimation. It was a wild day in the courtroom as Donald Trump took the witness stand in the $250 million civil fraud trial over asset valuations at the Trump Organization, the family real estate business at the heart of his persona. Less than an hour into his testimony, Judge Arthur Ngoron, who'll determine the verdict and the penalty without a jury, threatened to remove Trump from the stand for giving long, rambling answers to yes or no questions, even after being asked not to do so. Following Trump's testimony, New York Attorney General Letitia James had this to say. He rambled. He hurled insults. um, But we expected that. At the end of the day, um, the documentary evidence demonstrated that, in fact, he falsely inflated his assets to basically enrich himself and his family. He continued to persistently engage in fraud. Um, The numbers don't lie. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado, who was in the courtroom. So, Pat, what was it like in the courtroom? Because... Reading about the testimony, it seemed so contentious and and just off the rails at some points. It was basically, you know, we are all those of us who are trial reporters are used to the controlled environment where the lawyer asks questions and the witness is under oath and they're supposed to answer truthfully and they're supposed to answer to the best of their ability to give honest, truthful answers. Trump used it as an opportunity as a soapbox to take the stand and basically give the answer and make the statement and give the spin that he wanted to give and how he felt about this lawsuit. So he called it a witch hunt. He would basically ad hoc answers that were not to the exact question. He would just go off on a a diatribe or a long, long comment that the judge said, are we having to listen to an essay? (laughs) You know, I mean, at some point, the judge was trying to rein him in because that's his job, because the the trial was veering off the rails to not specifically answer what he was supposed to answer. He was talking about, you know, motives and applying all kinds of nefarious machinations behind the seat for why why the Trump with the lawsuit got brought. He called it fraud. He said the judge sitting right next to him was biased and said the case was crazy. And then the attorney for the state said, done. And then Trump said, done. But then he continued on and used every other question to use it as 
you know, a forum to air his grievances about the feelings about the lawsuit, how great his company was, how he has a beautiful company with beautiful numbers, and these are amazing, and he's so wealthy, he could do whatever he wanted. Well, the judge at one point said, you can attack me, but just answer the question, did he lose his temper? Well, the judge several times stopped and said, can you please control your client? And he turned to Kais, Christopher Kais, who is a lawyer for Trump. And he asked him, could you please control your client? And he was basically suggesting that he would dismiss Trump from the witness stand and he is allowed in civil law, in a civil lawsuit, to draw what's called an adverse inference. And he called it a negative. I could dismiss Mr. Trump from the witness stand. And he didn't say Trump. He kept saying the witness. And I could declare a negative inference. So, you know, basically all bets are off and I'm going to vote against Mr. Trump because he didn't think he was being honest in his answers. So did Kais at one point argue that Trump had a right to speak as a presidential candidate? Yes, he called him the former and soon to be chief executive of the United States who understands the rules. And the judge says, but he doesn't abide by them. But he was saying that he had the right to to do that on the stand? Yes. And Kais was basically arguing he has a right to do whatever he wants because of this. Uh, He's running for president, and otherwise his rights and free speech rights as a presidential candidate were being impaired. So what did he say about the financial statements? Did he make any admissions? He did acknowledge that he had signed. There were many times where they showed him guarantees. They gave uh, banks like Deutsche Bank for loans or loan guarantees. And for like the Durrell Golf Club in Florida, as well as for Chicago, uh, Trump Tower in Chicago, that he would guarantee that he had a certain amount of net worth. So basically, he guaranteed it. So he was having to admit on the stand that he had indeed signed and endorsed and affirmed the accuracy of the financial documents. They're called statements of financial condition that the Trump org had submitted attesting to the value of their properties and how much money they had on hand. For example, attesting that he had $20 billion in net worth, for example, or on cash. And Trump's like, yeah, it's a beautiful document. Don't you see that? It's beautiful numbers, beautiful numbers. So in the end, he could not distance himself from something that he had affirmed and signed and sworn that was accurate. Does that- That's a small victory. I mean, you know, these, these things that are being proven by the attorney general, it's a case that's basically built on, you want to think about them as little building blocks, this little element, this element, this element. He attested that Deutsche Bank, for example, he said was not defrauded. They got great loans and they were worth a lot of money and the bank was not a victim. And so for the lawsuit that Letitia James, the attorney general, has brought was basically nonsense and quote unquote crazy. But, you know, Deutsche Bank has said, had they known the true value, they may have not agreed to certain terms that they let Trump have. So, you know, this is now going to be up to the judge. And at one point, the judge interrupted Trump and asked the state lawyer, are you okay with this? Because it seems like he's going off again. And are you all right? And basically, the state lawyer, Kevin Wallace, said he thinks it's great. It sounds like what the state is happy about is Trump did not distance himself. He acknowledged those were his signatures. He acknowledged he did sign those documents, which eventually did go to the banks. 
He said it was up to the banks to do their own due diligence and that there's this clause at the very bottom that basically plausible deniability, that it's up to the banks. You know, it's like an escape clause that Trump claimed the banks, it was onus was on them to do their own due diligence and not rely on the accuracy of the numbers the Trump board gave them. So, you know, he's saying it's up to them and it's the fault of the banks and the insurers for not doing better due diligence. But the documents are what they say. So I can see why the attorney general may feel that they've actually gotten a lot out of Trump today, just basically what they needed. A lot's been made about the size of his triplex in Trump Tower. Did he admit that the size was misstated? Yeah, he was basically saying that, oh, that might have been a mistake because uh, that wasn't counting the elevator bank and that, oh, somebody might have mistakenly tripled it when it's really only 10000 and not 30000 and they got the number wrong. But as soon as it was discovered incorrect, it was corrected and, and put out accurately. But there are many times we have seen throughout this trial and other documents where they continue to tell lenders and insurers that this was not accurate. And also, is he claiming that Mar-a-Lago is worth like a billion dollars? Yes. He said it was worth a billion. And this is a strange answer that's been given by both the by the Trump sons, uh, Don Jr., as well as Eric, that Mar-a-Lago was supposedly had a National Registry of Historic Places preventing it from being developed as anything but this historic property. It's beautiful. And it was, you know, built by Meriwether Post or whatever. It's, you know, it's a beautiful 1920s mansion and it's on the water. And Trump bought it and then claims that he could develop it. And he did this also for a Scottish golf club that he wanted to develop. So he claims these properties, he could do whatever he wanted. So if it was okay for them to overvalue properties like Mar-a-Lago, because someday in the future, it could be, it's a club, but it could also be a residence, but it cannot be both. But Trump and his sons, uh, Eric and Don Jr. have said, it's a club and a home. So he can do whatever he wants, and he's the owner. And so sometime later, it could be changed, totally ignoring the fact that, you know, the National Registry of Historic Places says you can't change the construction of the building because it's historic. Thanks so much, Pat. We'll check with you on Wednesday after Ivanka Trump's testimony. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Kyle Hanagami's choreography has been used by Justin Bieber, Britney Spears, Ariana Grande, and he says it's also been used by Epic Games Fortnite, but without his permission. Hanagami owns a federal copyright registration covering a full five-minute dance routine from his video to Charlie Puth's song, How Long. 
He's claiming that Fortnite infringed on his copyright by using his choreography as an emote in the game. That's a viable dance for a player's avatar. Other choreographers have not fared well with suits against Fortnite. But a new ruling by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals puts a new spin on the moves. Joining me is intellectual property attorney Ryan Meyer of Dorsey & Whitney. Ryan, tell us what kind of dance is copyrightable. So with dance and copyright, there is a spectrum. And at one end is the copyrightable zone, which is choreography. Unfortunately, the Copyright Act itself doesn't expressly define choreography, and the courts haven't well defined it um, until this decision. But it's generally something that's a composition or arrangement of a series of dance movements. By contrast, at the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, simple dance that are just a sequence of body movements, generally short and simple, often something that's social, like the waltz or foxtrot step, and that is not copyrightable. So does it have to be a certain length, or does it have to be complex? Are there any sort of bright line rules? There aren't any bright line rules. What there are is... Uh, there's a series of non-determinative elements, and if any one of these is present or uh, not present, it doesn't necessarily affect the outcome. But those elements are whether there is rhythmic movement in a defined space, the compositional arrangement, musical or textual accompaniment, dramatic content, presentation before an audience, and execution by skilled performers. The length doesn't necessarily matter, although the longer and more complex, the more likely it is to be protectable. So how would a choreographer go about getting copyright? I mean, do they write down, you know, explain the moves? Do they show a clip of dancers doing the moves? How does the copyright office see what's there? So there could be more than one way, and both of the ways that you mentioned uh, might work. They could, for example, write down and explain in detail the uh, set of dance moves and pathways between the dance moves. Here, in this case, there was actually a five-minute video clip that was uh, performed to a song, and that's what was registered with the Copyright Office. Tell us about what is at issue here. What was the dance and the issue with Fortnite using it? Sure. So the dance is a five-minute dance performed to the song How Long by Charlie Puth. It contains about 480 counts of choreography with 96 repeated counts. But what was actually allegedly misappropriated are just four counts of the choreographer's work, which the district court described as a two-second combination of eight bodily movements set to four beats of music. Now, Fortnite is a video game published by Epic Games, and what they did is, in that game, you have an avatar. And one of the ways that they make money is, in a marketplace, they sell what are called emotes, which are dance movements or other kinds of movements that you can buy and have your... Uh, avatar perform them like a victory dance or just for fun and so here the emote is called it's complicated and it's this uh, small portion of Kyle Hanagami's copyrighted five-minute work 
he sued. And tell us what happened at the district court level. Well, at the district court level, he didn't make it very far. Uh, he filed his complaint, and in response, Epic Games filed what is called a motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim, and claiming that the choreographer had not sufficiently alleged that there was substantial similarity between what was copied. And the district court agreed and found that when the dance that was copied is divided up into a series of poses, those poses are not copyright protectable. Moreover, the part that was actually copied was just a short, relatively simple part of the overall work. And that short sequence is a short dance, which is not protectable by copyright. So the court dismissed Mr. Hanagami's case. That's the choreographer. And Mr. Hanagami appealed up to the Ninth Circuit. You know, I always wonder in these cases when it's artwork, how the judges have the expertise to figure this out. And it seems like in dance, it's it would be even harder for a judge. Yeah, and the truth is, uh, typically they don't have the expertise because most judges aren't experts in dance, or or they aren't necessarily experts in any particular area of copyright. And that's why copyright. The law generally says that copyright cases shouldn't be shouldn't be dismissed in a motion to dismiss. That they that the law just doesn't favor dismissal at the pleading stage. Is it easier if you have a traditional form of dance, for example, ballet or modern dance? Do you think that makes it easier to get a copyright? I would say probably not. I would say what is going to make it easier is uh, the complicatedness and distinctiveness of the dance, the positions and all the other elements that go into the dance. So he took this up to the Ninth Circuit. First of all, did the Ninth Circuit's ruling come as a surprise? A little bit. I think it did. Um, and there, there's a couple reasons for that. One reason is that this area of the law, not just in the Ninth Circuit, but in all the U.S., is not well-defined. There have not been very many binding cases relating to copyright and choreography. So what was going to happen was a little bit up in the air. And another reason why it probably came as a surprise was because previous cases involving dances and Fortnite, Epic prevailed every time. However, in those cases, copyright wasn't specifically at issue. So tell us what the Ninth Circuit decided. So the Ninth Circuit decided that the court had essentially applied the wrong standard for determining substantial similarity. A copyrighted work like choreography, when parsed into individual movements, each individual movement might not be protectable, which is essentially what the judge, what the district court found and stopped there. But the combination of them, the selection, the arrangement, the other elements, the pathways between each movement, when all of that is combined, the Ninth Circuit found that it could be a copyrightable work. And the Ninth Circuit also said it was an error for the court to find that this particular sequence was too simple and short to be copyright protectable because, as the court pointed out, even a very simple 
sorry, very short sequence can still be relatively complex. The court actually compared it to dividing a choreographic work up into just its individual poses would be like dividing a musical work just into its individual notes. So this is the first time that a federal appellate court has ruled on a copyright for choreography? It's the first time that they've ruled on choreography in a, in a really substantive way, and especially in the context of video games, which are using a part of an overall copyrighted work. This opinion, then, it's good for choreographers. It broadens what courts and, I suppose, the Copyright Office can consider? One of the big things that the Ninth Circuit did here was it actually gave a definition to choreography. Previously, the I think I might have said earlier, the statute doesn't expressly define choreography. However, the compendium of the, of the United States Copyright Office, their practices, it does define choreography. And the Ninth Circuit adopted that definition, which is, I think will make it a lot easier for choreographers and people trying to avoid lawsuits to know the bounds of what they can and can't do. So you think the Ninth Circuit gave enough guidance? That remains to be seen. The, the definition that they adopted still has, it's sort of like every legal definition, it's open to interpretation. Uh-huh. It's the composition and arrangement of a related series of dance movements and patterns organized into a coherent whole. And I think you can see that within that definition, there's lots of room for variation. There's lots of room for questions about how exactly how long does, does it need to be? Exactly how complex does it need to be? What is a pattern? You know, all these questions, I think, will, this case sort of opens the door for those issues to be further worked out. So what happens now? In the case. So it will return to the district court and they will proceed into discovery. Right now it's at the pleading stage and uh, Mr. Uh, Hanagami has survived, but surviving the motion to dismiss is relatively easy compared to actually marshalling all the evidence, the expert testimony, whatever he will need to prove his actual claims, um, either through later summary judgment or at trial. These cases are are often settled, but might Fortnite be reluctant to settle because they don't want to establish a precedent that every time they use a piece of dance that they have to pay someone? That is certainly part of the reason. Uh, And then another reason up to this point might be that they've had a string of other cases involving dances in Fortnite, and in all of those, they appear to have prevailed. Either it was the plaintiff's case was dismissed by the court, or the plaintiff voluntarily dismissed for reasons unknown. So clearly, Epic doesn't necessarily want to settle if they don't have to, and if it's you know not advantageous to them. I would just conclude by saying that anyone who is interested in copyright and choreography should really keep an eye on the Hanagami case, since cases in this area have been relatively rare. However, after the Ninth Circuit revived this case, we might end up seeing more choreographers using the law to protect their works and enforce their rights. We will certainly follow this case. Thanks so much, Ryan. That's Ryan Meyer of Dorsey & Whitney.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Should the government face lawsuits when it fails to correct false credit reports? That was the basic issue before the Supreme Court in a case where incorrect reporting left a Pennsylvania man with damaged credit. Joining me is Harold Krent, a professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. I know you were in the courtroom today for the oral arguments. Do you have a prediction right off the top? You know, I think the argument in the Fair Credit Reporting Act revealed uh, justices on both sides. My prediction is that the government will lose. It has a very tough case to show that it retains sovereign immunity under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. But the justices asked very probing questions uh, to both sides. Give us some context here, Hal. Explain what the case is all about. So Congress created the Fair Credit Reporting Act to ensure not only that credit reporting agencies such as uh, TransUnion made sure to change records when people thought that they were disadvantaged by incorrect information in the reports and therefore suffered in terms of their credit rating, and extended the act in 1996 to require duties of private individuals who had information about debtors and failed to correct the reports to the credit reporting agencies, such as TransUnion. And the word that they defined in the statute was persons, and they later defined persons to include not just private individuals and corporations, but also government entities. And so the question in this case is when, by extending this duty to not just the federal credit reporting agencies, but also to private entities and public entities, whether that is sufficient to waive the sovereign immunity of the federal government and therefore open it up to potential damages actions for failure to correct a record. In this particular case, an individual had taken out a loan for a rural uh, housing development well, for housing so that he could afford. And a subunit of the Department of Agriculture uh, said that he defaulted on his loan. He contested that, and he alleged that the Department of Agriculture did not correct the record. And therefore, he sued the department as well as private entities to recover damages because what he said was a false record of his credit status. And so this is a typical sovereign immunity case about whether Congress has been clear enough to subject the federal agencies to suit over their failure to comply with the Fair Credit Reporting Act provisions. Was it mostly a reading of the statute and interpretation of that? Yeah, so everybody agrees that the, the better reading of the statute is for the private parties. Um, the statute, again, says that every person shall be liable and then defines liable in a different section to include instrumentalities of the federal government. But there are some problems with that reading, even though that was the acknowledged better reading of the statute. One problem was that there was no recognition in the legislative history, to the extent that that matters, that Congress's decision in 1996 would open up federal entities to damages actions. And another problem was the fact that in other parts of the statute, the any person the word under the statute, can be subject to criminal penalties and punitive damages. 
and all the parties agreed that simply couldn't conceive of the fact that Congress would have wanted to apply punitive damages or criminal penalties to governmental entities as opposed to private parties. So the issue really boils down to how clear must Congress be in waiving the immunity from a damages action for the federal government. And so it's a relatively close case, but most of the justices, in my view, could be wrong. They're leading to the fact that if you simply have a statute requiring persons to pay damages and you then define, albeit in a different section, persons to include instrumentalities of the federal government, that should be enough. Justice Brett Kavanaugh said, so you said at the beginning that Congress knew what it was doing when it amended the act, but I don't think it realized that it was imposing this liability. You know, it does seem that it was an inartfully drafted statute to some extent, but I think that uh, except for Justice Kavanaugh and maybe one other justice or two, it was close enough. I mean, (laughs) certainly, I think if Congress had to do it over again, it could clarify with more specificity when the government could be sued for damages, when who could be prosecuted for a criminal infraction of the act. And it used the same term, persons, in both, and hence the confusion. And, and I think Justice Kavanaugh had drawn the line and said that to waive sovereign immunity, Congress must say in creating cause of action that they mean it to cover not only persons, but persons, comma, including federal instrumentalities. And that is perhaps a conceivable drafting exercise, but most of the justices didn't think Congress had to be that specific, and it was unrealistic to make Congress be that specific in drafting these kinds of provisions. Justice Elena Kagan suggested the case could be resolved by applying statutory interpretation 101. Was it that simple? Doesn't seem that simple. Well, you know, it's that simple on its face, right? If you just looked at the fact that Congress specified that all persons would be subject to these civil penalties and the civil penalties included federal instrumentalities, that's statutory interpretation 101. But when you look and see that the same construction then allowed for punitive damage and for criminal penalties, then the question seems to be much more complicated. And so even though Justice Kagan would like this to be (laughs) statutory construction 101 and may ultimately write the case that way, certainly Congress wasn't abundantly clear because of these other provisions that are in the same act itself. And all parties agreed that you could not subject the government to criminal penalties or punitive damages for failure to follow the Fair Credit Reporting Act. What are the implications of this decision? I mean, are there a lot of cases like this? So Justice Sotomayor noted at least three statutes that had very similar constructions, including the Clean Air Act and some some Water Act and some other statutes as well. So there are other types of congressional enactments which define the scope of people to be liable as persons, and then in another section of the statute, construe or define persons to include the federal instrumentalities. And so under these statutes as well, the question could arise as to whether civil penalties can be obtainable from federal agencies, which you know violate the Safe Drinking Water Act or Clean Water Act and um, a couple of others. So there are consequences here, but more broadly, the issue is to what extent will the court demand a clear statement before agreeing that Congress has waived the sovereign immunity 
of the United States and therefore expose a federal instrumentality to suit. Justice Gorsuch asked a very probing question, I thought, that wasn't answered by the litigant. And he said, is it possible that we would create a greater specificity of Congress when it waives a state's sovereign immunity or an Indian tribe's sovereign immunity or foreign instrumentalities immunity as opposed to that of the federal government itself because Congress keeps the fisc. And so Congress is always thinking about what is the impact of its statutory provisions on the fisc where it may not be as respectful of the immunity of other entities such as states, again, or Indian tribes. And I thought that was an interesting way to distinguish other cases and perhaps to put a new sort of wrinkle on the extent that sovereign immunity should continue, but neither side really engaged with Justice Gorsuch on, in this question. But that may reemerge um, in an opinion or two of the court. Thanks so much, Hal. That's Harold Krent, professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.